All right, so last week we kind of went through most of Matthew 10, but it was really only on one person. So we're not, we're not done with Matthew 10, we're going back through it again. And really last week was more of a topical message on, on who? Judas. Okay. We talked about Judas. What were some things, Jesus is talking to all 12 apostles here in Matthew 10, what were some things that Judas was called along with the other 11 apostles? Anybody? Disciple. He was called disciple, that's right, which means learner. Uh, what else was he called? He's a sheep. He's called a sheep in the midst of wolves. Not a wolf in the midst of wolves, but a sheep in the midst of wolves. What else was he called in, in the passages of Matthew 10? A servant, that's right, yep. Servant not above his master, right? Anything else? Well, he wasn't called an apostle, but he was sent out by Jesus, which by definition makes him an apostle. Because apostle means, it's a, it's a transliteration of the Greek word apostolos, it means sent out one. Sent out by Jesus. So he's, by definition he was an apostle, yes. He's also called a worker, in verse 10, a worker worthy of his food. All these things uh, Judas was called. Now, this Matthew 10, we looked at it chronologically. It was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, beginning of the apostles' ministry. And we looked at all the passages where Judas was called a devil um, in John 6. But that was chronologically at least six months later. So we, know for, you know, we don't hear, have anything in between this and that where Jesus is calling him a devil or you know, a thief. As we know, he was later on, he was called a thief by John in John's gospel because he was stealing from the money bag. He was a treasurer. And when the woman came and anointed Jesus' feet and washed her feet with her hair, he said, why wasn't this given to the, to the, to, to the poor? And the real, real reason he said that is because he was a thief. And he wanted the money for himself. So we saw that Judas was the first what? Prosperity teacher. He was the first thief trying to make money off of godliness. He was the treasurer of Jesus' ministry, and he wanted the money for himself. And we saw at the end, what did, he, what did he betray Jesus for? For money. And what do the prosperity gospel preachers betray Jesus for? Money. They want to make money off of Jesus. So Judas is the first prosperity gospel preacher, and what happened to him in the end? He killed himself, and where did he go? Yeah. And these prosperity gospel preachers, if they don't repent, that's the place they're going to go to. Well, yeah, they'll go to a, a worse place. And we'll get to that here a little bit today, too. Uh, so Judas fell away from the faith because he was a sheep, he was a disciple, he was a servant, he was a worker. Uh, he was sent out by, by Jesus. And what, what power did he have? What did he have power to do? Cast out demons? Heal the sick? Heal the diseases? Cleanse lepers? Raise the dead? And people would have you believe he was never a true disciple of Jesus. But anywhere in the Bible did Jesus ever give people directly the power for these things and tell them to preach and they weren't a true Christian? No. And we looked at Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, many will come that day and say, haven't I done this and that and this in your name? And he talks about working miracles, prophesying, casting out demons. Wait a minute now, did these people actually do these things? Do we know that for sure? 
They said it about themselves. So they're saying these things to Jesus on that day, the judgment day. Did Jesus himself give them this power directly? So it's possible they didn't actually do these things. There's people in the world today who claim to do these things, right? And there's lots who claim to do these things that actually aren't doing them. And another option we really didn't discuss much last week, but could be another option, is that they did it under demonic power. We know in the last days when the false prophet comes, he will do lots of miraculous things. And I think, the pro and according to Revelation, I think they're pretty legitimate things. I don't think they're fake. So they could be doing this under demonic power, too. So we have Judas doing all these things, having this power, and we see some warnings Jesus gave in verse 27 and 28. Uh, do not fear those who can kill a body, but not kill the soul. If rather fear him, is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that was probably more of a direct warning to Peter than to Judas, because P Judas' problem was the love of money. Peter's problem was the fear of man. Because when man questioned him after Jesus was taken in the garden, he gave in three times and said, no, I don't even know him, because he had the fear of man. So Jesus is giving legitimate warnings here to his, his disciples. Okay, so now we, we've, we've talked about Judas. We've, and we, we also, one more thing we also looked at, touched on real quick to kind of remind you, is we looked at some of the fulfillments of Scripture that Judas made, and we saw the difference between absolute prophecies, conditional prophecies, and then also parallel fulfillment prophecies. And the ones regarding Judas were always what? Parallel fulfillment prophecies which had a legitimate application in the Old Testament when they were originally written, but also had a legitimate uh, parallel with Judas, too. But they weren't originally written about Judas. And we looked at the story of, of the, the man who betrayed David and how there's so many parallels there between what he did and what Judas did, and even how he killed himself and how Judas killed himself. Lots of parallels there. So... Those, the ones that are have, regarding Judas never say Judas's name. Um, they're obviously in reference to something in the present time in the Old Testament when they were written, but they have an application in the future with Judas as well because of what he did. But they weren't written directly about Judas. In fact, if Judas had never been born, if Judas had never done the things he had done, those scriptures would still have a purpose in the past. And we would have never have known they would have had a purpose in the future because Judas wouldn't have fulfilled it. So we see a difference between those things. Was that? Hmm? How, how people would ask this question, I just would wonder how to answer it. How, how could God fill Jews with the Holy Spirit, huh? send him out as a disciple, do all these things through him, and yet know that he's been betrayed? He has all full foreknowledge, which we believe. Mm -hmm. He has all knowledge of everything. How could he do that knowing that Jews is going to betray him, Jews is going to hang himself, go to hell? become a son and son of perdition, all these things that Judas will become, how can he do those things through him and yet know that's going to happen in the near future? Do you mean why would he or how can he? Because God can do anything. Because God can do anything. Uh, why would he? Well, that's something I don't know the answer to. Uh, I just know the Bible proclaims these things. Just like uh, the Bible proclaims, obviously, that God knows the future free will actions of mankind. It doesn't tell us how he knows them. I don't think... We talked about it before. I don't think God's looking down at a timeline and he sees past, present, and future all at once. Um, that's kind of uh, a concept that Augustine, I think, brought into it. Um, but I don't, the Bible doesn't say that. And I don't particularly think it's like that. But I do think God interacts with humanity uh, in the present 
and he interacts with them at their level they're at now, just because he knows Judas is going to depart from the faith doesn't mean if he has a genuine faith now that God should interact with him. Isn't God obligated if Judas has a genuine faith now, according to his own standards set in Scripture, to, to interact with him the same way you interact with anyone else? I mean, for all we know, one of us could eventually depart from the faith later on, but that does not mean that right now we're not genuine. You know, so these questions, I mean, it's, it's a legitimate question, but sometimes we can typically say, I don't know. And then the question becomes, shouldn't become one of a stumbling block to believing what the truth does say, and rejecting that and going to a different system like open theism, which better philosophically answers those questions, but to stick to what the scripture says. Right, because the script, I mean, according to Colossians, the philosophy we have should be based upon Christ and his word, not upon worldly wisdom. Now let's read it to you real quick. It's Colossians uh, chapter 2. And it's for, end of verse 2, it says, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So sometimes people will use philosophy to deceive people with persuasive words. And then down in verse 8, it says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So our philosophy we have, we should get it from the Bible. And if our philosophy is trying to supersede what we see in the Bible, our philosophy is wrong. Right. When the Bible is quiet about something, we should be quiet about it. Um, there are some things in this world that simply are not for us to figure out and can be chalked up to mystery. Now, the open theists, from my interaction with them, would say, well, that's a cop-out to say it's just a mystery. Well, then I would ask them. Let's go to Matthew, for example, Matthew 7, 13-14, which says, that there are many who will be go to hell and few who will be saved. And I'll ask them and say, was that a certain statement that's definite for all time, including the future, that many will go to hell and few will go to heaven? They'll say yes. Well, how can God know that with certainty, factness, if he doesn't know the future free will decisions of mankind? And according to open theists, deciding to follow Christ is a future free will decision. And I'll say, well, how can that happen? They'll say, well, it's a mystery. Well, then you have the same problem that I have. So th there is mystery involved here. What we can know is what God has revealed. What we can't know is what he's chosen not to reveal. So that's where we should stay. And in the future, maybe he'll reveal these things to us in, in, in eternity when we get into the kingdom. Maybe he won't. Right. Right. Anyone else is falling away from the faith. Or will. Yeah, I think sufficiently, if you look at Matthew 10, we've proven that he was actually saved in the sense that he was a follower of Jesus, he was a disciple of Jesus, not saved in the sense where he had the Holy Spirit living inside of him, but that the other disciples were just as saved as he was before they had the Holy Spirit living inside of them, and so were the Old Testament saints, just as saved as they were before they had the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Mm, I don't think so. No. No, I don't think so. There's a pastor who talked about that said that he was going to sit on one of the 12 thrones. We looked at that. And that was even after he was called a devil by Jesus, which means he still had a chance, in my mind, to get back on, in, on the right path and be a part of that 12 thrones. Yeah, but I don't know of anything that says that he, he had... I mean, the Holy Spirit was breathed on them uh, to some degree in John 20, uh, but he wasn't, he wasn't a part of that. 
And that was, after, that was, I believe that was after his ascension or was after he had gone and betrayed Judas. But then afterwards, the Holy Spirit finally comes and lives inside of believers on the day of Pentecost. The only time you see the Holy Spirit being upon or inside of believers before that is very uh, specific situations like when Saul was anointed king and he prophesied among the prophets. You know, some of the prophets had the Holy Spirit. But as a, gen as a general rule, not every believer had the Holy Spirit until after the day of Pentecost. And then everyone who believed after the day of Pentecost, the moment they believed, they received the Holy Spirit. But those who, were, who believed before the day of Pentecost but weren't at the day of Pentecost got the Holy Spirit later on because they weren't at the day of Pentecost with the disciples in the upper room. Like those who were following John or had the baptism and repentance of John, they got the Holy Spirit later on, usually by the laying on of hands. Right. They're still saved. They're still saved. They were justified by faith. Right. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of the New Covenant. Right. You know, so the people who were saved on the Old Covenant, they're no less saved than you and I were. You know, if we got saved after the New Covenant started, after the day of Pentecost, we would have got the Holy Spirit right away. It doesn't make us a better believer than those who didn't have the Holy Spirit. So then I stand corrected on Judas was a little bit different than you and I. He's not exactly like you and I, but he's yeah. exactly the same, that he departed from the faith in the same way we would depart from the faith. But he was just as saved as someone that has the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I, I would say that to some degree he has it worse because he had Jesus speaking right to him face to face. Uh, but to another degree, we have the Holy Spirit living inside us. For us, to depart from the faith is probably just as bad. So, um, you know, where he had Jesus in the flesh, we have the Spirit of Jesus living inside of us. So it is, it's pretty much on the same plane. Yeah, yeah, I'd say. So it's all, it's all very dangerous, but it, it, it's clear to me that Judas was saved in the sense that he, he was forgiven of sins and he was following Jesus. And Jesus had picked him. And, of course, the Father had given him to Jesus, and Jesus said, I had lost none that you have given me except the son of perdition, the son of destruction. And we looked at word destruction and how Apollyon is the, one of the words given to the devil, and he's the, the father of destruction, and this is one of his sons, and that the devil came and, and filled up Judas the same way he's going to fill up who? The Antichrist. Yeah, so they're, they're likened to each other. Okay, so let's, let's get into Matthew 10 today. And we've looked at Judas now, and now I want to give you a little bit of synopsis about the other disciples here and what happened to their life. And then we're going to go through um, verse 15. Okay, so let's read Matthew, uh, 10, 1 through 15, and then I'll, I'll, we'll talk about disciples a little bit. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, do, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor he hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. 
Okay, so we have a list of apostles here. And most of the list of the apostles you see throughout the New Testament is usually the same order, for the most part. Okay, so let's just talk about them. Peter, uh, you know, the, based on the leader of the apostles, he eventually died in Rome in A.D. 65. He was crucified upside down. Because he did not see worthy, think himself worthy to be crucified right side up like Jesus was. So he's crucified upside down. And thus fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus gave of Peter that uh, when he was young, he did what he wanted to do, went where he wanted to go. Uh, but when he was old, he will stretch out his hands. And that's what you see in John 21, 18. He says to Peter after he restores him and tells him to feed his sheep, most assuredly, I say to you, when you are younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. When you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus about Peter's death and how he would die, uh, Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. And just to kind of give you a little story, this is, now this is just tradition. Now, this is not something you find in the Bible. But this is what tradition says about it, that in Rome, Nero wanted to kill uh, the Christians. And uh, the Christians got wind that they were going to try to take Peter, the leader of the Christians in that area, and try to kill him. So they warned Peter, and Peter was going to flee the city. And as he was walking out of the city one night, trying to flee persecution, he saw Jesus walk by him and go back into the city. And he said to the Lord, he said, Lord, where are you going? He said, I'm going to be crucified again. That's what, that, this is what tradition says, that he saw Jesus walk in. He took that as a sign that he used to go back in and get crucified then. So the believers tried to persuade him to flee anyway, and he decided to stay, and that's when he was crucified, put to death. So that, that's what tradition says. Uh, some of the early church followers talk about that. Uh, Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified in Greece in 66 A.D. And sometimes you see on the cross, like with Jesus on the cross, they, he died pretty quickly. Uh, Andrew hung, hung there for three days on the cross, still alive, still preaching to people as they passed by him. And the believers in Greece were begging the, the, the governor or king in that area to allow uh, them to take, Peter, to take Andrew down and let him live. And Andrew said, no, Lord, don't, don't let them take me down after I've been on this cross for three days. And I, I want, this is the way I want to go. I want, I want to be glorified in my, in my death. I want you to be glorified in my death. And and soon after he said that, tradition tells us his spirit was given up and, and he died. But he hung there for three days. And dying on a cross for three days, hanging on a cross for three days, is very excruciating pain. Uh, you're suffocating yourself. I think we've talked about this before, but if you have your arm like this and you're, you're nailed there, there's, there's pain just by being nailed right there. There's a, there's a very uh, sensitive nerve right there. That's where they would have been nailed and on the feet. And in order to breathe, they'd have to push up on their feet, which are nailed to the cross, to get, it, to get an exhalation. Otherwise, they're in an exhale position the whole time. So to inhale, they have to push up even to get an inhalation. So you're constantly pushing yourself up on these feet that are nailed to the cross just to be able to breathe. And that's why when, when Jesus was crucified, they didn't want the, the criminals to be on the cross for a long time. So what did they do? They went and did what to their legs? Broke their legs. Because now they can't push up and they're going to they're die of suffocation. But when they came to Jesus... He had already died, so he didn't break his legs. It's actually fulfilled a prophecy from Psalm 22. It says that not a uh, bone would broken on him. So that's how, that's how Andrew died. James was the first apostle who was martyred. He was killed in Jerusalem in 44 AD. And you see this account in Acts chapter 12, uh, 1 through 4. 
But tradition tells us that his accuser, he had one accuser, not two, not three like you're supposed to, but one accuser who lied about him, and that's what he was being put to death for. And his accuser was so convicted by, by James' peace in the midst of his potential martyrdom that he broke down and gave in right then, apologized to James, and went and was killed with him. Uh, now, the verse just talks about James being killed. It'll talk about all that, but that's Acts chapter 12, 1 through 4. Yeah, by the, well, he's killed by the sword, it says. So we can, I think we can assume he was beheaded, but... Um, yeah, but, so, so, but this other guy, according to tradition, was killed with him, the one who brought the accusations against him. And he supposed to have two or three witnesses to kill someone, and he only had one. And they put him, so they, they really just wanted to put him to death, with what we're saying here. So, but according to tradition, his accuser got converted and was killed with him because of the peace that James had in the midst of his suffering. John, of course, lived the longest. He wasn't martyred. He died at the ripe old age of about 101 years old outliving by 30 years all the rest of the apostles. And um, he died in Ephesus. But, you know, the fact that he didn't get martyred was not for the, the, the lack of trying to kill him. There's one story that the, the emperor wanted to kill him, and there had been a, you know, a rumor circulating that he was the unkillable apostle because of what Jesus said in John 20. And, you know, John even talked about that in his gospel. And um, they put him down in boiling tar. And he was praying on the way down. They saw him. They saw him, or I think it's well, not tar, but oil. He boiling oil. And they had him down in the boiling oil. He was still praying, and he, nothing was happening to him. And where the the emperor wanted to squash Christianity by killing one of the leaders, when he's raised back up with this boiling oil, it actually strengthened Christianity because of this miracle that was just done in the presence of people. And so he was banished to Patmos, and even on Patmos, where he wrote Revelation, and I believe even the Gospel according to John, uh, they tried to poison him and kill him. But what does Jesus say about if they try to poison you? He won't, he won't die. So, uh, so it wasn't for a lack of trying to kill John. But then you have Philip. Uh, he was the second apostle to die, according to the tradition. He died in 51 AD in Hierapolis. And um, we don't really know exactly how, but there's one or two things. Either he was whipped and crucified, or he was tied to a pillar and stoned to death. So that's how Philip would have died. Now Bartholomew, um, we truly think he's Nathaniel. Nathaniel is talked about in the Gospel according to John, but you don't see Nathaniel in any of the lists of the disciples. And we think that's just another name for, for Nathaniel, Bartholomew. And it would make sense because who went and got Nathaniel? In the Gospel, you remember who went and got Nathaniel? It was Philip. So we're going in order here of, of how Jesus is, is meeting them and calling them. Uh, so it would make sense that, that it actually is Philip. So he was uh, beat with rods, crucified upside down, skinned alive. And after all that, he's still preaching to people as they're passing by. And finally, they get him to shut up, they cut his head off. And this is in Armenia in AD 70. I think we've talked about Bartholomew with that quite a few times when he was... That's, that's, a, that's a testament right there. To be beat with rods, skinned alive, crucified down, and still preach to people that are passing by. And they get you to shut up, finally, they cut your head off. I'll tell you. Thomas made it uh, all the way to India. And around 70 AD, uh, they put him in a furnace, 
to try to kill him, and they saw that it wasn't hurting him. Kind of like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, the, it was the priest of this idolatrous religion in the area who were so mad about this that he, nothing was happening to him. They started throwing javelin spears at him, and one of them pierced him in the side, and he died. So the furnace couldn't touch him, but he was, uh, he was killed with the spear and it pierced him in the side. <clears throat> that was around A.D. 70. Uh, Matthew, in 66 A.D., he was killed in Ethiopia, which is in uh, northeastern Africa, right near the, the, uh, the horn there. And um, he was preaching inside a, a church that he had founded. He was uh, dragged outside, nailed to the ground with short spears, and beheaded. That's interesting because right now in Ethiopia, did you see that? No. Now there, there's like 50 other listening on the Mission News Network. Sorry to interrupt. That's right, yeah. It goes along with this. Right yeah. There, but there, there, um, there's been Islamic attack on over 50 different churches there right now. Mm. Major, major persecution in Ethiopia right now. Doesn't surprise me. On, on the church there. So hmm. I just heard that on the Mission News and then we have James of Alphaeus, and he, we don't really, these last three we're going to mention, we don't have as much information about them. James of Alphaeus was most likely killed in Egypt. We don't even really know how. Um, Labaius, Thaddeus, also another name for him is Jude. He's possibly the writer of Jude that we have in the Bible. Uh, he was killed in Persia in 66, uh, 68 A.D. And then Simon the Canaanite, also called Simon the Zealot, he was either crucified or hacked to death in Persia in 68 AD. He was, they were, he was ministering alongside of Labaius, Thaddeus, Jude, whatever, whichever name you want to call him. They were ministering alongside you in Persia together, and they both were killed in 68 AD. But Simon, here's a little fact about Simon the Zealot. He possibly went to Great Britain and preached. He possibly made it all the way there to preach. Because in 68 AD he was killed in Persia. Okay, so that'll give you a little history about the apostles and what happened to them. And uh, really all we have regarding them is tradition and history that we don't know for sure is true. Uh, but a lot of the early church followers agree on these things, so we're pretty sure they're true. But the fact is, all of them were killed, except for John, and of course Judas, Judas killed himself. And the Apostle Paul, who basically replaced him, he was killed. He was beheaded. And the only reason he was beheaded instead of crucified because he was a Roman citizen. And that was the more noble death for them because it happened so quickly. Okay, so we, we see here in verse 5 that Jesus told them, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the city of the Samaritans. And... Why did Jesus tell them not to go preach to Gentiles and Samaritans? Why did he do that? Right? Right? So was it because Jesus didn't love the Gentiles or the Samaritans? Or because he didn't want them to be saved? No, I don't think so. In fact, in John 12, 32, this scripture is often used, I think, in a wrong way. And Jesus says in John 12, 32, if and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. People often use that in prayer and say, Lord, as we lift up your name and preach your name, you know, draw all people to you. But he's speaking of his crucifixion, because it says right in verse 33, this he said, signifying what death he would die. 
So before his death, they're reaching just the Jews. Although he ran into a Samaritan woman along the way, another woman, a Gentile woman along the way too. So it was, but they weren't seeking them out. Now, these people were coming to them. The centurion was even came, and followed, came to get him. So they weren't seeking them out. But after Jesus' cross, what does he tell them to do? Going to all the world and preach the gospel. And really, it was, they really still weren't getting because they still stayed in the area. And you know, Peter went to Cornelius. And then there was a persecution which dispersed them around the area. And then the apostle Paul came along. That's the apostle of the Gentiles. But even when he traveled to different areas, who did he go to first? He went to the Jews first. He went and reasoned them from the scriptures in the synagogue that Jesus was the Christ. So this was even a temporary command to them. And then we see here, once again, that they had the power to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast the demons, freely have received, freely give. Now, there's a group of open-air preachers going around who say that if you're not doing these things while you're open-air preaching, that you're not doing everything you're supposed to be doing. And they get this from Mark chapter 16, and uh, verses 15 through 18. I'll take a look at this just for a second here to show what I believe is a wrong interpretation of this scripture. So let's say, uh, it says in verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now that obviously that applies to every believer. Every believer, okay? He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So this group of people who's going around doing this, they're saying, well, if, if you're preaching the gospel truly, you'll speak in tongues, you'll cast out demons, and you'll heal the sick. If you're not doing those things, if you're not speaking in tongues, you're not casting out demons, you're not healing the sick, you're not truly doing everything that Jesus commanded you to do. But notice their bias here. Notice that these people are not taking up snakes, usually. They're not drinking poison. Now, there are some groups that will do these things. Some groups in the hills of West Virginia or in the mountains of Mississippi and Alabama. I actually watched video footage of this when I was in college studying this issue where they actually have services where they drink poison. And they have services where they have these, this big bowl of, big barrel of rattlesnakes and snakes. They're reaching there. They're passing snakes around each other because they're taking this literally. Now see, if these people who believe you're not doing everything God told you to, if you're not casting out demons, healing the sick, and, and speaking in tongues, they should be doing that very same thing. But they're being very, um, uh, they're, not, they're not being completely honest with themselves when they're coming to the interpretation of this passage. Now what I think it's saying is, every believer has the ability to cast out demons. Every believer has the ability to speak in new tongues. Every believer has the ability uh, to heal the sick. If God so wills it. And if you drink poison, it won't hurt you, unless God wants it to. If you take up a snake and it bites you, it won't hurt you if God wants. And we see an example of the Apostle Paul. When he, they came up on this island, he went to go gather some twigs, some sticks for the fire. And what happened? He picked up a snake on accident. It bit him. People thought, well, he's going to die. Nothing happened to him. And we see the example of the Apostle John, not in Scripture, but by tradition. He was on Patmos. They tried to poison him. What happened? Anything happened to him? No, he didn't die. Okay? And to kind of back up what I'm saying here, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is a passage that talks about the gifts and how the gifts work in the body when it comes to speaking in tongues, healing the sick, etc. 
we'll see how this all works. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Very good, Paul. Very good. I don't want people to be ignorant about this either. So let's make sure we read this and understand what it's saying here. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God called Jesus accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are diversities or varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given, given to each one for the profit of all. For one, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another gifts of different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And here's the crux issue. Listen to this verse very carefully. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So the Holy Spirit gives each of these gifts as he wills for the edification of the whole body of Christ. That's what it's for. So not everyone's going to have the gift of tongues. Not everyone's going to cast out demons. Not everyone's going to uh, heal the sick. But of course, we all have the potentiality or the ability, if God gives it to us, to do such things. It must be given to us by the Spirit. But Mark 16, 15, when it says to preach the gospel, is preaching the gospel a gift? There's the difference. There's the difference. The other things are gifts. Even the gift of drinking poison and not getting killed. Or the gift of taking up a, snake and a poison stick and it biting you, not being hurt. That's a gift from God that he protects you in that way and doesn't allow it to harm you. Now, we're all going to die in some way or some sort. So I don't know, you know, it may be one of us will die by that, but... Um, Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I, I'd say that is presumptuously uh, if you have the proper interpretation. But if you have the wrong interpretation of Mark 16, then it's not presumptuous. And see, the people who are saying we should be healing the sick, casting out demons, and speaking in new tongues, but they don't apply the other two parts of it, they're being inconsistent. Interpret the whole passage consistently. I see what it actually says for you for your interpretation. But the proper interpretation, they're interpreting the, the poison and snakes part properly, not the rest of it. And the only part in there that every believer should be doing, without a shadow of doubt, is sharing the gospel with other people. That is not a gift. That's for you to take the initiative to do. Okay, so we see that, so this issue of casting demons, healing the sick, uh, is not something that's given to everyone. It was given to every, every apostle there. And I believe if we were to go to Luke, it's given even to the 72 who Jesus sent out later on. But Jesus gave it to them specifically. He didn't give it to all everybody. And then it says, Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs. For a worker is worthy of his food. Now this is a temporary command as well, because later on he says to take these things. Right before he's crucified, he says to take these things with him. 
And um, so this is just a temporary command from him. And later on, he says, take these things. And I believe that's in uh, John. Remember, right? Unfortunately, I didn't write down this reference. But um, let's see here. Yeah, you have to look that up yourself. I don't have that written down. But uh, it does later on say to, to take those things. Um, but I want to I touch this real quickly on this, this part that says a worker is worthy of his food. Now, recently, maybe a few months ago, we talked about tithing, uh, that issue, and how the New Testament concept is that there is no mandatory 10% tithe that is given to us as a New Testament church. Uh, but you're to give what? As you, as you purpose in your heart to give. And you're to give generously. And you're not to give because you'll receive in return, although, although you will be blessed the more you bless. Uh, but one thing we really didn't touch on was this issue of a worker is worthy of his food. So let's just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I just want to balance that a little bit here to make sure you understand the whole counsel of God on this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 4 and read through 18. And this is the Apostle Paul talking about his, um, his rights as a minister of the gospel, his rights as an apostle, but he doesn't take advantage of these rights. He says, do we have no right to eat and drink? He's talking about him and Barnabas now. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So he's saying here, start right there for a second, he has a right as an apostle to refrain from working secular work and be supported by the people he's ministering to. And it goes on to say, uh, whoever goes to war at his own expense. So the first example I give is war. Do soldiers go to war for free? They get paid by the people they're going to war for. And in the U.S. it would be the U.S. government, which is paid for taxes through the U.S. people. It says, who, who plants a vineyard does not eat of its fruit. When you plant a vineyard, you're not doing it for free. You get paid to do it. Either you get paid because you're the owner and you make money off the fruit, you eat the fruit yourself, or you're paying the workers with fruit or with money. Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? If you went to work and never got any kind of benefit from it, you'd probably get real discouraged. Wouldn't want to continue working. He says, do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? He goes to the Old Testament now in Deuteronomy. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So as an ox is is uh, treading out the grain. He's plowing the fields and helping to plant the fields. You don't put a muzzle on it and want to eat. It's going to get worn out and probably pass out and fall over. and won't be able to do the work any longer. And he says, is it the auction that God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt that it is written that he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown... If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? So the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, we've sowed spiritual things to you. Is it that big of a deal to reap material things back? So he's saying he has a right as a minister to them, as an apostle to them, to reap material things back from them. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, Corinth was a very wealthy city. It was a city right on the isthmus, that little peninsula between the big part of Greece and this little big, this other big part of Greece, this little line there, and ships, instead of going around Greece, which is really turbulent waters, they would come to this little isthmus in Corinth, 
they go across, take their, their supplies across the isthmus and get another boat on the other side. It's a really rich city. So he didn't want to go there and say, well, I'm here just to take your money. And he, he didn't want to hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ in that way. So he said, no, I'll just work. And he, uh, so he said he didn't want to hinder that. And he says in verse 13, do you not know that those who minister of the holy things, talking about the temple in the Old Testament, eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? We looked at that too. Now, what, how, what percentage did those, those priests who were ministering, what percentage of the actual offering did they get? They got most of it. They gave a tithe of the best back to God, but they got most of it. So they were benefiting from the tithe was bringing to the, the Lord's house. Even so, the Lord has, this is a very important verse here, even so the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. No, I have written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me, yes, woe is me if I do not preach. So he's saying, if I preach the gospel for, for material gain, there's something wrong with me. Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. And he goes on to say, for I do this willingly... I have, a, I have a reward, but if against my will I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then? This is a reward for not taking what he's, he's allowed to take. He's allowed to reap the material business. He said, I'm not going to do that, and this is his reward. That when I preach the gospel of Christ, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. And just one more thing I'll touch on real quick is in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And this is Paul talking to Timothy, and he just went through in chapter 3 about the qualifications of leadership. And now in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse 17, he's going to talk about the uh, authority an elder has and how they should bless him. It says in verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You should not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the one who's laboring in the word and doctrine, count them with double honor, and the laborer is worthy of his wages, and it goes back to the same exact thing they talked about in, um, in 1 Corinthians 9, do not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Okay. So that just I wanted to balance that out for you to kind of see there's two perspectives here, and we must balance it out, where there's no compulsory uh, tithe to give to a church body, uh, there, you know, there is other side of the spectrum too. We need to look and have, have a happy meeting here, okay? Okay, so let's go back to Matthew chapter ten and uh, and verse eleven. And he talks about them going to cities and, and go where they'll allow you to go. If they greet you, you know, let your peace come upon. If not, let your peace return to you. Then he says, whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from the, the house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. So surely I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the, in the day of judgment than for that city. Now why is that? Why is Sodom and Gomorrah going to have an easier judgment day than those who reject the teachings of the disciples? Why is that? More knowledge? And what does more knowledge equal? And more responsibility not obeyed equals what? That's right. 
That's the biblical principle we see. And that's why when an open air, people, I'll say to people, listen, if you reject what we're saying here, you're going to have a worse judgment day and a worse hell than people who have never heard the gospel. America, possibly, is going to be the nation under the worst judgment for those who don't believe. There's not only more knowledge in America, there's more access to knowledge, and there's more freedom to get that knowledge and believe it and obey it than ever before in history. So people in America who don't believe the gospel will probably have the worst judgment day possible because of their access to knowledge and their freedom to believe it and obey it. And let's just look at a couple more verses that back this up. Matthew chapter 11 and verse uh, 20 through 24. Which says, uh, then he, Jesus, began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. So the reason is he rebuking them because he did mighty works in these cities, and what what did they, what is their response to it? Did they repent? So listen, what he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works that are done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you. It would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would re it remained to this day. But I say to you, it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So Sodom and Gomorrah, which is wiped off the face of the planet, will have an easier judgment day from God than these cities that are rejecting Jesus' mighty works. Why is that? Because they had more knowledge. Did Sodom and Gomorrah have Jesus preach to them? All Sodom and Gomorrah had was Lot, who was a righteous man, according to Peter, who was tormented in his soul day and night by the things he heard and saw. But remember what happened when those angels came there, and he tried to stop the angels from getting, stop the, the people of the city from getting the two angels. What, what did they say about him? This stranger who's among us tried to judge us day and night. So he was saying something to them. But obviously, who's a better preacher than Lot? Jesus. Did Lot do miracles? Not that we know of. But Jesus did mighty works in these cities, and he weren't repenting. And Sodom and Gomorrah, who had Lot to preach and judge and tell them the truth, will have an easier judgment day. And the fact that God had, Jesus hadn't wiped these cities off the face of the planet shows his mercy towards them. He wants them, he's giving them time to repent. And then uh, just one more passage here, uh, John chapter 9. John 9 and verse uh, 39. And Jesus said, For a judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. So there's, a, there's, there's an accountability requires knowledge. Even being declared sinful or being a sinner requires Knowledge, understanding. And I'm sorry, just one more here. It's uh, John 15 and uh, verse 22. 
Jesus speaking here, he said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen me and have also hated both me and my father. So the sin he's talking about is the sin of him doing miracles before them and proclaiming the full counsel of the truth to them. Now they have sin for rejecting that. Not that they didn't have any sin at all before he came along, but that sin. If he hadn't come and done those things, they wouldn't have the sin of rejecting the gospel. See, in some countries around the world, people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're still sinners. They reject the, the light of their conscience. They're right and wrong. But if I come to them and preach the gospel to them, and now they reject that, now they have added sin to themselves. But now they've rejected the gospel. The only thing that can save them, where before they didn't even know the gospel. So they're adding, if I did miracles among them, they're, they're having, adding even more sin to themselves because they're rejecting miracles that are obviously done by God and by his power. All right. Well, I think we'll stop there for today. Okay, does anyone have uh, questions or objections or things you want to add to it? Yes. Yeah, um, well, we ha I had a whole teaching on this that talks about how the word tithe is, is from the Hebrew word, which means a tenth. And tithing was an Old Testament concept, and it was actually a tax upon the Jewish people to support their government, which consisted of the Levite, Levitical priests. Um, so that was their government. Now, when King David and the rest came along, they started having king, they got taxed even worse uh, to provide for them. And they're going to have to be sent out to war, too, now. Um, so that was an Old Testament tax system. But in New Testament, there is no tax system. Uh, but what 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, and I would encourage you to read that whole passage, <clears throat> it talks about we need to give, not compulsory, like it's forced upon us, but give uh, as we've purposed in our heart to give whatever we choose to give, and give generously from our heart, and give as giving to the Lord. So those, those are the, the principles we follow when it comes to giving, uh, New Testament giving, because we don't have a, a theocracy above us like the Old Testament Jews had. Uh, and if we're going to be, if we're literally going to give, just like they did in the Old Testament, you give about 25-26%. Because if you look, you add up all the tithes they gave in the Old Testament, it ended up being about 26-27% of your income, which is really likened to what the American government does. I think about 26-20, sometimes you get up to a third, depending on how much you make, of your income. So that, that was really just a tax system, and it was compulsory back then. You had to give. If you didn't give then, you are breaking the law. Now, we're to give to Caesar, due to Caesar. So if the government says pay taxes, we're to pay taxes to them. But when it comes to giving to ministries and to churches and ministers, we're not obligated to give a certain percentage, like they did in the Old Testament. So we're, we're to give as we purpose in our heart to give uh, and give out a generous generosity of our heart. And the more we sow, according to the Bible, the more we'll reap in return. So that, that's New Testament giving in a nutshell. But I went through all the scriptures and everything, and, and that teaching probably about an hour long or so like that. So, yeah. I was thinking about this, this 
last part that I was, uh, was speaking to me for like last night in Knoxville. Everywhere, but it just seemed like there was like a spiritual like fog um, that or rain preaching. You want that to be lifted, you know? People right. will just listen. There were those that some that hang around and listen, like we talked about. There's always those that will refuse to listen. And, but later, Tab and I were talking about how uh, there needs to be just something to awaken people. To mm-hmm. the seriousness of what the message is being delivered, you right. know, right. and uh, and I was thinking about what you shared here about uh, reminding people that this message that you're you're hearing now, um, by virtue of you hearing this message, that you can, you can be saved. If you're rejecting it. You're having a greater judgment. You're adding a greater judgment to yourself. On right. the day of judgment, you're going to have a greater judgment. Kind of opening that up right. for them might. You know, Lord, maybe we would use that to awaken people to the seriousness of what right. they're just walking by, just, <coughs> you know, just, just, just don't even care. And, right. and I, maybe it's, we're, we're wondering if it's like just because of the Christian culture out here, people have heard, heard the Bible so much. Come dull of hearing. Yeah, right. you know. And, but I was wondering, like, could somebody say, well, well, if I'm having greater judgment, then you're, you're, you shouldn't be coming here and telling me. You're making me, you know. Right. You're making me have a worse judgment then. You know? Right, they, they could say that. It, it, there's a potentiality for greater judgment, but also a potentiality for greater blessing. Right. Yeah, that's, that's the and when they say, I say, listen, I'm coming here because I want you to be saved. Yes. If I didn't come here, you'd have no, and hear, you could hear the gospel, you'd have no potentiality to be saved. Yes. So me coming here gives a potentiality for you to be saved and be blessed, but if you choose to go the other direction, you're going to have greater condemnation. Yes, that's, that's, the, that's the problem. And I think, Kevin, what you're talking about, we see all around America, especially in the Bible Bill here, is a dull of hearing because these people have heard the truth day in and day out, not as pure as they should in some places, but they reject the truth they hear, so their heart becomes dull to that. And the more truth you hear and you don't obey, it becomes dull and boring to you. It's lost its sharpness. Uh, but when you obey it, when you hear more, it's like, yeah, I'll obey that. Yeah, I'm going to obey that. You're hearing more, you're going to obey it more. Your heart is always in tune with the Word of God and it never becomes dull to you. The Word of God never becomes dull to me because I'm always keeping in accord with it. I'm trying to, to obey it at all times. Whereas I would, if I just kept on disobeying and the same thing every time, I'd become dull to after a while. And, and, and that's when you're dangerously drifting towards reprobation or apostasy and you're going to fall away from the faith. I can totally see that with stay here in America with, that, with how there's you know, certain areas of America even more than others. Right. Greater judgment than this would be probably an area. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I think that's, that's probably one of the reasons we see a lot of 
natural catastrophes around the world, God is trying to wake people up and jar them maybe a little bit. And, and we'll, we'll probably see that more and more in America as we get, America as a whole gets more and more depraved and more sinful and doesn't come back to God. We're going to see more and more of that. And that's one of the ways God tries to wake a nation up. He's rejected him. You know, there's financial problems. There's uh, natural catastrophes. There's sicknesses and diseases. Uh, and then there's foreign invaders. Those are the ways that God judges a nation when they turn their back on him. And usually the foreign invaders is the last one. We see that in Jerusalem, in Israel a lot, the foreign invaders come in, they got brought into captivity. You know, so the, these, these are the things that God uses to wake up a nation, and God is doing all those things to our nation. Yeah, and they, we, you know, 9-11 happened, and it's like, yeah, people went to church for a couple of weeks and didn't really repent, and they went back, they went back to sleep spiritually. And that was it. And, you know, New Orleans happened, and they, they go down and have Mardi Gras a month later anyway. And, and you know, yeah, New Orleans is it's still not good. It's still tore up. And uh, so, it, it, you know, people just don't want to wake up. I wonder if we're more like, in a sense, you know, we're preaching the gospel, more like the prophets in the sense that we're just, mm -hmm. Jeremiah, he, he was there um, witnessing the death of the Yeah. Right. And, he, and he was just warning them. They could have, they could have repented. Right. But he was just, you know, basically right. there and watched the death of the nation and warning them, this is what's going to happen. And nobody returned. Yep. That's the way I feel sometimes. That's why I've always said that, you know, the Bible is one of the hardest places in the world to preach because people are just so dull of hearing. I, I, sometimes I'd rather go to the Northeast or some place where there's just a bunch of ungodly people who know they're not Christians, don't think they're Christians, and preach to them and deal with complete pagans and then deal with these, uh, these professing Christians who think they're saved but they're not. Because you have to get them unsaved first. <laughs> At least help them understand they're not saved. So, but, uh, all right. Anything else from anybody? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I got a lot of scriptures together for the Osteen thing coming up pretty soon. So. Um, probably the best place where I already have them typed up that you can see is on the False Teachers website. On the side column there, if you go to like the Benny Hinn video page, you'll see like 20 verses there at least that just or 20 passages, not verses. It's just right there and just on the side there that you could uh, could look at. And what I did was I have. Uh, here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where I think that's a big passage there, I have all the different verses there that apply to this issue, that I think apply to this issue anyway, and just kind of as a note, because I know if I want false, these are these, on these prosperity, I go to the 1 Timothy 6, and I have these other ones here that are kind of referenced to, that I, I can look at too. Uh, and I think 1 Timothy 6, 5 through 11 is probably one of the best passages when it regards to these, these issues. So. Mm -hmm. 
watching like Jeremiah, um, watching the death of the nation, and there was false prophets and false teachers at this time. Peace, peace. That were saying peace, peace, mm -hmm. getting people comforted in their sin, and, and the nation was, they were listening to those guys. Mm -hmm. That's a similarity to that. Yeah, keep in mind the, uh, when I was giving you the qualities of a good shepherd and the characters of a, of a bad shepherd, one of the qualities of a bad shepherd is they, they're a hireling, according to Jesus. They don't care about the sheep. They just care about making money for doing their job. That's what they care about. Whereas the Apostle Paul, even though he had a, uh, a right to claim these material things, he didn't for their sake. Yeah, for their sake. Because he didn't want the name of the gospel to be, blasted, you know, to be hindered. Yeah, he was a good shepherd. Yeah, he didn't want the gospel to be hindered.